Hi, my name is Ralf Urich. I'm a senior litigation counsel for Google and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 136 of IP Fridays. This episode is the holiday episode and we have a very special treat for you. Today's interview guest is Ralf Urich. He is the senior patent litigation counsel for Google and he is overseeing all European patent litigation. Be sure to stay until the interview. It is really exciting. You can hear from my voice that I just recovered from a COVID infection. So I hope my voice does not fail me when recording this. Before we jump into the interview with Ralf, I have some news for you. First of all, the European Court of Justice has just ruled that Amazon is liable for trademark infringement on their marketplace. So good news for trademark owners. They can now more easily sue Amazon for trademark infringement on their marketplace in Europe. Also, my co-host Ken Suzanne had the chance to have a brief interview with Stacy Calamaras reporting on recent changes in trademark law at the USPTO. Thank you, Rolf. Uh, joining us today is returning podcast guest Stacy Calamaras, and we are going to discuss the recent and important changes at the United States Patent and Trademark Office regarding response times to office actions. This is a major change in trademark prosecution procedure in the United States, and practitioners need to know the details regarding these changes. Stacy is the founder and lead instructor of Trademark Abilities, a practical training academy for lawyers. Stacy is a seasoned trademark lawyer, having spent most of her career in big law and in-house representing many well-known brands in over 150 countries, focusing on global trademark portfolio management and enforcement. Prior to law school, Stacy worked as a marketing and advertising executive. She is a devoted trainer of other lawyers, having educated more than 5,000 lawyers on a wide variety of trademark and IP topics since 2018. Welcome back, Stacy, to the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. It's great to be with you. Stacy, can you tell us about the new rule at the USPTO uh, with respect to uh, responding to office action responses and the types of office action uh, actions it applies to? Yes. So on December 3rd, 2022, the USPTO changed the amount of time trademark owners have to respond to an office action from six months down to three months. This rule applies only to office actions issued on or after December 3rd. So it applies prospectively and only to applications filed under Section 1 or Section 44. So that means it does not apply to Madrid protocol applications. Madrid applicants will still have six months to respond. Now, to answer the second part of your question, 
the new rule will apply to all kinds of office actions, whether or not it's just an ID or a disclaimer or more substantive in nature. The one exception right now, just temporarily, is that the new rule does not apply to post-registration office actions, but that will come into force in October 2023. So we have a lot of moving parts to keep track of with this new rule. And that's why it's so important that we're having this discussion today, Ken. Definitely. There are a lot of moving parts. Um, Are there limits to our ability to file a request for extension to file a response? Yes, I'm glad you asked. So anyone who is implicated by this new rule can get an additional one-time three-month extension of time that's available for a $125 fee. So that will bring the full time available to respond to the office action back to the original six months. However, you must file the request for the extension before you respond. So what that means is you cannot file your extension request and the response simultaneously like you can on the patent side. You must file the extension before your response. However, the USPTO defines what a response is in their recently issued exam guide and something like a request to divide or an amendment to allege use is not considered a response by the USPTO. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Now, what happens in the event no response is filed uh, to the office action and no extension was filed? Well, the same thing as what happens before December 3rd. It just happens more quickly. The application would be abandoned. Uh, It would just happen shortly after the three-month response period. However, nothing has changed in this regard. You would still receive a notice of abandonment, and you would still have the opportunity to file a petition to revive. It's just the time period now is a little bit more uh, compressed and shortened. So paying attention to your docket and notifying your clients timely so that you can receive instructions, I think is really going to be key under this new rule change. Yes, definitely. And what would you say are your recommendations for handling a final office action? Many practitioners often will get what's known as a final office action. Maybe you could just give me a little summary of what is a final office action and how do we handle that under the new rules? Right. So here in the United States, we often get what I characterize as two bites at the apple. So uh, you get a first office action. And then if you, uh, especially with substantive issues, you may try to argue around that substantive issue. And if your arguments are not persuasive, um, you might get a final office action, meaning that you still have a second chance. So especially with the likelihood of confusion refusal, if you try to argue it and the examiner isn't persuaded, then maybe that might be an opportunity to try to seek consent or to petition to cancel a registration or some other tactics that you, you may want to try. With a final office action, though, you also can get one on an ID refusal or other non-substantive issues 
what many of us try to do as practitioners is we try to file those responses, quite frankly, in the first three months to see if the examiner will provide some feedback before the end of that six-month period so that we don't have to go to the expense of spending our client's money on a notice of appeal. But this new rule change kind of shakes up that strategy of ours a little bit. The exam guide that issued, though, uh, about 10 or so days ago from the time that we're recording this in early December makes clear that filing um, a notice of appeal is considered a response. So if you want to be efficient and file your request for reconsideration, is that's what a response to a final office action is called without filing that earlier extension request we just spoke about, that might jeopardize your client's rights to have that additional three-month time period to respond. So I think that if you have something that's a little bit dicier in your final office action to respond to, you may just want to spring for the additional $125, get that extension period, um, and 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 go ahead with the original strategy of trying to file as early as possible, see if yeah. the examiner can get you that feedback so that your client's rights are not um, are not limited in any way, so that you're still preserving them. And then remember that towards the end of that, that response period, whether it's three months or whether you extend to six months, you always want to file a notice of appeal, even if you don't appeal, because that's your very last chance to preserve um, the record if you do intend to, if you do intend to appeal uh, any okay. decision, any final decision from the USPTO. Good advice, Stacey. Uh, last question for you. Uh, what practical tips do you have for handling a docket and managing our clients during the next number of months? So look, I think there's just going to be a lot of confusion, both inside our firms, whether you practice in a large IP department, whether you're in a small IP department or on your own. So I think we have to make sure we're communicating closely, both with our docketing department, or if you're managing it on your own, you just have to monitor these dates really closely. And we have to communicate with our clients closely getting these reporting letters out to our clients as quickly as possible to make sure that our clients know an office action issue, make sure they're aware of this rule change, communicating the deadlines very, very clearly and asking for instructions early. And finally, I think we all just have to have a lot of patience. We have to remember that this rule is new for the USPTO as well and the examiners too, and they're going to have a lot more work in the short term. And while the goal of this new rule change is to cut down on the backlog, and the real end goal is to make sure that our, our clients and trademark owners get their registrations issued sooner, it may take a little bit of time before all the kinks are worked out, and that ultimate goal is realized. So I think just a little bit of patience, but the docket is just going to be key. So please make sure you're staying on top of these dates and that you're aware of them, most importantly. Very important material, Stacey. And thank you, as always, for your continued work in this area and spending time with us today on the IP Fridays podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. 
Thank you, Ken and Stacy. And now, without further ado, I turn the mic over to Ralf Urich, who is overseeing the patent litigation in Europe for Google. Today, I'm joined by Ralf Urich. If you don't know Ralf, he is the senior patent litigation counsel for Google, and he is litigating patents uh, for Google since 2015. He is responsible for Europe, for the whole patent litigation business of Google. Thank you for being on the show, Ralf. Uh, thanks, Ralf, for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So you have been a long-time listener of this podcast of IP Fridays, I heard. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got I got hooked by an interview you did with Justice Grabinski a couple of years ago. Uh, on the, I think it was on the UPC, um, and yeah, I've I've been following you ever since. So great podcast! <laughs> Thank you so much. So um, one thing I was very curious about uh, back then, uh, and still I'm curious about uh, the background of this. Google acquired Motorola in 2012, and with it around 20,000 patents to achieve patent peace. That was like the official explanation. Uh, 10 years and some more acquisitions later, would you say that the topic of patents became more peaceful for Google compared to 2012? Um, that's quite a blast from the past. So, uh, but thanks for the question. Um, I think first I have to say, at 2012, I wasn't at Google, um, so I can't really give you the background on that deal. I was outside counsel for Google back then, but of course not not involved in that transaction. As a as a Google lawyer, I can tell you that. Google regularly enters into acquisitions and licensing agreements that allow the engineers to focus on innovation. And so in that regard, obviously, our own patent portfolio plays a critical role, especially when it comes to uh, cross-licensing. Now, to your question, has the world of patents become more peaceful? Certainly not with regard to NPEs, in my view, um, who have little or no interest in cross-licensing because they have no product of their own. That's a good question, a good good answer, I think, because um, NPEs are are a concern for many today. And uh, let's see how the patent system evolves, whether they will foster NPEs or uh, will NPEs will have a more difficult time in the future. Nobody knows, really. So... <laughs> The Unified Patent Court is opening the doors early next year, um, in June to be exact. Uh, are you prepared? Um, yes, we'll be ready to participate in the UPC and I'm personally very excited. So the first most pressing question for me, uh, and I had very different answers to this from very large companies, will you opt out the patents from the UPC or not? Will it be a mix? So, I mean, not only I'm excited about the new system, but we as a company are very interested in the new system as well and eager to learn more about it as it takes shape and evolves. Um, I mean, in my view, as with any venue, we will consider um, our use of the UPC on a case-by-case -case basis. To allow for this, um, we plan to largely opt out our patents from the UPC's jurisdictions initially to preserve our options. But since opt-out can be easily withdrawn, we will carefully consider which patents we will assert in which jurisdictions at which point in time. Okay, one question, one follow-up question for this. Um, how do you identify the patents that you will re-opt in? Uh, are these the patents that, for example, survived opposition or even an appeal? Or uh, what are the criteria for this? Uh, this could be a, um, a consideration, for example. Another consideration would probably be whether we actually want to assert this patent in this specific venue and then just withdraw the opt-out and effectively um, opt into the UPC's jurisdiction again. So you just mentioned that you are really excited about the UPC opening the doors next June. Uh, so 
Why are you excited? Why is Google excited about the UPC? I mean, it's it's the first pan-European civil court, um, at least to my knowledge, um, and it's an entirely new court system and rules. And I think um, having been practicing patent litigation for quite some time, I think this is a probably once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, to, to be being able to shape the system and as a party contribute to make it a fair and balanced venue which promotes innovation and respect for IP. So the laws and rules uh, governing the proceedings before the Unified Patent Court are a colorful mix with a strong influence from Germany, French, Dutch and British rules. The deadlines will be very tight and a larger team will be necessary to successfully litigate before the UPC. What, in your opinion, will be the most important qualities of such a team? What type of people would you want on such a team? Uh, uh, that's a great question, Rolf. Um, first of all, I think you're right. A lot of, or several, I should say, traditional European patent litigation systems have influenced the UPC and its rules. Uh, judges have a diverse uh, legal background, um, and I mean this not only with regard to their formal education and experience, but also professionally, right? So we'll have national judges uh, joining the bench, but also um, patent attorneys and industry representatives. So that's that's really gonna, it's going to be a new challenge. Um, I think, for, for the parties to address um, um, uh, the bench in that regard. And I think a successful UPC litigation team will have, will have to be able to adapt to, to this challenge. Um, I reckon that collaboration across the international council teams will become key, probably even more than it already is in your cross-border patent litigations that we're all used to. So um, one follow-up question to this. Um, You say the international litigation teams uh, should collaborate more. Um, so, for example, if a litigation case is pending in the US and then becomes pending at the UPC before the UPC, like just in, as, in, as an example, uh, do you think that it will be in the future even more important that the litigators uh, before the UPC should also consult with the uh, I mean, have a more close uh, consultation with the U.S. litigators? This would probably fall in the category of traditional cross-border patent litigation. I was more thinking about the collaboration of European outside counsel teams that you may want to retain for um, one single UPC case. Okay, thanks so much for the clarification. And uh, so I misunderstood the answer a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So in, in Germany, we just had uh, the claim for injunction weakened, uh, in my view. Uh, it is now up to the court to decide whether injunction is fair or not. Uh, with the UPC, patent owners can still get an injunction without disgaging by the judges. Is that good or bad for Google? And where do you see the claim for injunction going? First off, I want to say that proportionality has always played a role in German civil law, and that includes patent law, of course. Um, and it's a concept which is fundamental to European law. So. I think the, the German uh, Federal Supreme Court acknowledged this principle in the uh, famous heat exchanger case. Um, and you will find this principle enshrined in Article 3.2 of the IPRIT. And I think also that a common principle of proportionate IP enforcement um, is enshrined in EU law and acknowledged by the Court of Justice for the European Union. Now, the German patent law reform in 2021 clarified this and importantly broadens the scope For example, by acknowledging that third-party interests have to be taken into account when determining whether or not to grant a permanent injunction. Now on to the UPC, because that's what you actually asked about. So um, if you look at the UPC agreement, you'll see the sources of law in Article 24 are EU law, which includes the common principle of proportionate IP enforcement that I just mentioned. Um, further, I think Article 63 of the agreement 
clearly states that the court may grant injunctions against the infringer. So there seems to be some discretion um, in there. So there's clearly discretion and proportionality under the UPC agreement, which in my view will eventually be confirmed by the Court of Justice for the European Union, which will have the last say in this matter. So maybe it will not be so much different to the German case law at the moment in the future. <laughs> Potentially. Poten I mean, will it mean that the UPC will regularly deny injunctions? We We'll, of course, have to see what happens, but I'm not sure this will be the case. But I also think that the UPC will not just automatically enjoin infringers. And the scope of the injunction isn't a binary decision either, in my view. Proportionality allows for nuanced decisions, including grace periods um, or carve-outs, for example. And finally, I think I'm glad you tied this back to the German patent law reform, because I'd expect um, the UPC to also award the patent damages in lieu of an injunction. So after the start of the UPC in June next year, will you file more patent litigations with the UPC or national in Europe? I guess similar to what I've said with regards to the opt-out and the withdrawal, um, we will decide this on a case-by-case -case basis. And you know, we plan to use the UPC for the right cases. More generally speaking, the UPC will be one of the many options available um, to patentees to enforce their rights in Europe. And I expect all stakeholders to consider including the new court in their enforcement strategy. Now, will they put all their eggs in uh, one basket? We don't know that yet, but the UPC will be one of the many venues available to patentees in Europe as of June 1st. So what, in your personal opinion, will be the most difficult hurdle in the UPC system? It's a great question, Rolf. I think that it will be challenging at first to predict the outcome of a pending case because there's no UPC-specific precedent. However, I'm also positive that the judges who have a treasure trove of experience in patent litigation matters in their national jurisdictions will do everything in their power to establish predictability and bring legal certainty to this new court system. My, my personal opinion is that the judges uh, are known now, so the list of judges, and a lot of these judges are German, uh, especially also the chief judge of the appeal um, of the appeal court will be German, Klaus Krabinski. And it might be easy if parties wanted, wanted to have this uh, case reviewed by German judges to just file it in German. <laughs> um, so what do you think? Um, will it be quite, will the case law be dominated by German case law, by German judges, or will it be more broad and uh, also a lot of influence from other jurisdictions? Uh, good question, Rolf. I've heard about the strategy as well, but I don't think this is how it's going to play out. First off, even under the current system of national enforcement of uh, European patents in Europe, patentees are using different jurisdictions to enforce their rights. So even if a plaintiff decides to do this, they will still have at least one judge on that panel with a different legal background and which will of course also influence the outcome of that case. Finally, I'm confident that the Court of Appeal of the UPC does not understand itself as merely a German court um, because it is a court of the, of, the, of the UPC and the judges have diverse legal backgrounds as well. So I'm, I'm confident that there will be a UPC precedent that will distinguish itself from merely the German case law that exists right now. Yes, I agree. 
Thank you for this very open uh, and very good answer. Um, of course, my question was a little bit biased because I'm a German patent attorney. And of course, I'm interested in not having to learn too much uh, new case law. But of course, I agree totally with you that uh, and hopefully it will be a more colorful mix uh, of case law in the future. And actually, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Maybe we can fix uh, all the problems that are currently existing in the different jurisdictions at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. And you honestly sound just as excited as, as I am about the new court. So that's great. So what would you say are currently your biggest challenges in patent litigation in Europe, except for the upcoming UPC? The first thing that comes to mind is, of course, FRIEND or um, SEP patent litigation. In my view, one of the biggest challenges um, right now is how to deal with the uncertainty around the application of the FRAND rules, which follow from Huawei ZTE. It looks to me that continental European courts appear to be avoiding uh, comprehensively evaluating FRAND offers of the parties and trying instead to resolve all disputes at the willingness stage. I feel this is unhelpful for reasonable parties who want to conclude license agreements in a standardized environment. And many stakeholders would appreciate more guidance from the courts as to what FRAND actually is. Another big challenge for every patent litigator and, and frankly, everybody who advises on patent law is the um, uh, lack of transparency when it comes to the dockets and filed cases, um, especially in continental Europe. As you know, Rolf, from your own practice, it can almost be impossible to get information on pending litigation um, in European courts. And this makes um, advising sometimes very challenging. I certainly hope that the courts will follow the UPCs or maybe even the EPOs lead at one point where, where there's just a transparent uh, registry similar to what PACER maybe is in the United States where you can access court filings and can inform yourself as a member of the public about what's going on in those cases and not just having to see um, an a anonymized decision coming out at the end of the process. Yes, that would be really helpful. Uh, great that you bring this up. <laughs> Do you have any additional thoughts? I just want to get a little bit more out of you uh, while you're here. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, so, I mean, the lack of transparency makes not only giving legal advice tricky, but also it makes policy make making difficult, right? Uh, the system is just as intransparent to the legislator than it is to all the other stakeholders. I also think that the lack of transparency further plays in the hand of non-practicing entities, which can leverage the intransparency and file claims in different jurisdictions and argue differently, maybe about same claim terms. And I'm sure, Rolf, you've seen this in your practice as well. The lack of transparency makes coordination extremely hard in uh, cases involving multiple defendants. Right. Um, I've seen this as well. So, for example, if a client of mine is sued by an, uh, another entity, we don't really know who, uh, which other competitors are sued by this entity and whether we can maybe coordinate our efforts to, uh, to counter claims or to invalidity proceedings with the other possible defendants. So that's a big problem. Yes. Yeah, it allows the plaintiff to divide and conquer and the defendants have to fight with their hands tied on their back. So there are some companies that are already trying to, to work on this problem and to, to gather information about the ongoing litigation in Europe. Um, and some are quite promising. What do you think? 
I think you're right, and the products are great, and I use them as a tool um, uh, fairly regularly. However, my concern is they are not comprehensive, and that's that's a concern. So since you're working at Google, wouldn't it be really cool if uh, Google could gather this information? And Google already has a product like patents.google.com. Uh, would it be Wouldn't it be really nice to have something like caselaw.google.com uh, or something like that? Um, well, that's a, that's a great idea, Rolf. I mean, first off, I have to say I'm, of course, not involved in the business or engineering um, at Google, but I can tell you I personally would love a product like that. Um, the data is just not available. So what, in your personal um, opinion, are the top three things that you have learned in the last 10 years litigating patents for Google? Top three learnings. It's, it's it's pretty hard to say actually. There there were a lot of learnings. I learned a lot, obviously, litigating uh, patents for Google in the last 10 years. I'm not sure whether I have an actual top three, um, but a couple of things come to mind. First, I think the um, litigation landscape around standard essential patents has significantly changed uh, since Huawei ZTE. If you remember the case law before Huawei ZTE was pretty formalistic. Um, and now after Huawei ZTE, and I know I've criticized the application by um, uh, the national courts earlier, I still think Huawei ZTE brings parties more often to the table. And that, that, that's definitely one of the learnings in my view. Another thing that comes to mind would be the German patent law reform. We talked about this earlier. So we've seen the first judgments coming out of Dusseldorf and Munich in that regard, but I think it's too early to draw a conclusion as to the actual scope of the new Section 139 of the German Patent Act. However, what, what I've noticed, I wouldn't maybe call it a trend, but I've definitely seen that plaintiffs, specifically non-practicing entities, um, have started to not go for injunctive relief in every case. I think that's an interesting development, and... You know, if if I would have, if it has to be a learning, Rolf, I would say that you know, statutory reform matters. So thank you very much for reporting on what you've learned in the last 10 years, which is uh, definitely very interesting for our listeners uh, of IP Fridays. Um, and I'm very grateful that you took your time to be uh, on IP Fridays and prepare for all my curious questions. <laughs> to Google about patent litigation in Europe. Um, I'm very grateful. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you, Rolf. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. Um, and I really look forward to many new episodes uh, of IP Fridays. Thank you so much. Thanks. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program 
are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.